William Tyrrell, known to his parents and extended relatives as a joyous presence to their family and greater community, was an unrelenting, energetic and imaginative spirit of New South Wales, Australia. His playful creativity and bright future was cut short by an unexplainable, unsolved disappearance on September 12th, 2014 leaving all who knew him across Kendall and Australia grasping for answers in a sea of evidence that drowned us all in doubt. In the hope of providing more substantial reasoning built upon observable evidence and situational analysis, this is an examination of William Tyrrell's sudden disappearance and the dead-end mystery of Benaroon Drive. This is Cold Case Detective. William Tyrrell was born on June 26, 2011, to parents Brendan Collins and Carly Tyrrell in the suburbs of Sydney, Australia. Now there are strict child protection laws across the country that prohibit much information about William or his family to be released in the public sphere without their consent, especially regarding civil complications in William's biological family. However, a bit of information regarding his parents' history was approved for publication by the New South Wales Supreme Court and quickly reported on via familial interviews, providing at least a partial look into William's early life. William's biological parents, Brendan and Carly, met in 2009, while Brendan worked in construction and excavation in Granville and lived with his half-brother, Mitchell. The couple entered into a relationship, but soon found themselves in the middle of a toxic partnership, with the police being reportedly called to their house for domestic disruptions. Mitchell moved out and away from the chaos as the couple's troubles persisted over the next few years. When the summer of 2011 arrived, Carly gave birth to William, but the miracle of a new child did not resolve her and Brendan's building tensions. The courts finally intervened and mandated the couple separate while also partaking in domestic violence classes to protect both themselves, their infant son, and their future as a family. Yet, one month shy before William's first birthday, Brendan and Carly broke their agreement and were caught associating with one another at a video store in Ryde, another western Sydney suburb where William's maternal grandfather lived. In retaliation, the Department of Family and Community Services in Australia told the couple that William would be removed from their home for his own goodwill, due to their unlawful negligence. However, Carly and Brendan would not let their son be taken away from them, and hid away with him in a granny flat for the next three months. Unable to run forever, Brendan and Carly were eventually discovered by the Australian DFCS, who removed William from their care. They placed the young and innocent boy into a foster home up on the north shores of Sydney, under the watchful eye of two foster parents who we cannot name due to the aforementioned legal impedances. For months, Brendan and Carly poured nearly $50,000 of their own money to fight for William's custody, but were unsuccessful. Sporadic visits in public places provided the couple with their only opportunity to see their son, who they feared was being treated too strictly by his new foster parents. Nevertheless, William developed into an energetic and playful soul, enjoying time in his safer lifestyle with his foster sister while continuing to appreciate his blood parents' visits. 
Brendan's mother, Natalie Collins, told the Chronicle that her son had a tight-knit relationship with William, claiming there to be a real bond between father and son. Without a doubt, William was a beloved child by both his new family and his true mother and father, despite their troubled partnership and tense circumstances. He was accepted by everyone, who all only wanted what was best for him. He was put into preschool and fell in love with learning, whilst enjoying a growing list of activities allowed by his foster parents, including special trips to a foster grandmother. However, in a tragic twist, it would be one of these harmless and engaging playdates that would see William's promising future be extinguished without warning. Let us now turn to the timeline of events that led to William's disappearance. On the morning of Thursday, September 11th, 2014, Carly Tyrrell prepares to see her son, three-year-old William Tyrrell, at one of her infrequent visitations set up by the Australian courts. However, she receives words that plans have been changed, and William is scheduled to go on a special trip with his foster family instead. Later that same morning, William is picked up early from preschool, and along with his sister and foster parents, travels four hours from the Sydney suburbs to Kendal in New South Wales to visit their foster grandmother. William's foster grandmother, on his foster mother's side of the family, lives on Benaroon Drive, just across from the Kendal State Forest Bushland Road. The following morning, on Friday, September 12th, William and his sister decide to take advantage of the fine weather and play outside. They are joined by their foster mother and grandmother, who watch the children from the front porch. At around 9am, William and his sister ride bikes in their driveway. Unbeknownst to them or their parents, a sedan, later described to be either green or grey, drives past the house and into the dead-end street nearby, turning around in a neighbour's driveway and heading back onto the main road. Roughly between 10 and 10.25 a.m., William plays what is theorised to be a game of hide-and-seek with his sister, around their grandmother's property. He uses the balcony outside the back of the house a few times as a hiding spot, but stays within earshot of his guardians and does not leave the area. This is the last confirmed sighting of William Tyrrell. At around 10.25am, William's foster mother quickly runs into the kitchen to make a cup of tea. She hears her foster son imitating a tiger's roar from the outside of the house as he runs along the structure's side. Five minutes pass, and at about 10.30am, William's foster mother realises she hasn't heard William for a few minutes and runs outside to look for him. She briefly searches both the backyard and front yard, calling out his name, but finds no trace. Meanwhile, a four-wheel drive vehicle is seen turning off Benaroon Drive, unrecognisable to the nearby residents. An estimated 15 minutes go by, and at 10.45am, still no sign from William appears. His foster father returns from business in Lakewood to aid in the search efforts, as do a group of neighbours who receive knocks on their doors and calls for help. After an additional 10 minutes bears no leads or clues, William's foster mother calls the emergency services line to report William missing at 10.56am. Precisely 10 minutes later, at 11.06am, the police arrive at the Benaroon Drive home and the investigation into William's sudden vanishing begins. Over the next five days of mid-September, massive search parties come together to scavenge the Greater Kendall area to try and locate William. 
These groups include state emergency service personnel, rural fire service members, and random citizens of the communities surrounding Benaroon Drive. The police form special task forces involving sex crime squads to lead investigations and utilize motorcycle patrols, helicopter flyovers, and Cavadier dog resources. The dogs are able to pick up William's scent at his foster grandmother's house, but are unable to pick up a trace outside of the property line. Law enforcement also check every house along Benaroon Drive, sometimes combing through basement to attic several times before clearing a neighboring home. Overnight, volunteers even march through rugged territories, including drivers checking out bodies of water and dam locations, desperately searching for any evidence. Despite the unbelievable amounts of manpower and endless hours exhausting every possibility, no leads are uncovered. At the end of the fifth day, on Tuesday, September 16th, 14 trained detectives and special analysts of State Crime Command create Strike Force Roseanne, a full-time endeavour to focus on the William Tyrrell case. They are tasked with processing information submitted by the general public that may lead to William's whereabouts. Within the first couple of months following Strike Force Roseanne's assemblance, investigators clear both William's blood parents and foster family of any malicious involvement in his disappearance, and criminal charges are not considered. At around the same time, authorities fear William is the victim of a paedophile circuit operating around New South Wales. They bring in sex crime experts and interview countless subjects, but end up ruling out any sophisticated master plan revolving around these sickening, paedophilic organisations. Potential sightings of William increase as the calendar flips from 2014. In early 2015, one sighting came from two passengers and a crew member aboard a New Zealand-bound flight, who all thought they spotted William on the airplane. Police demanded that the plane stay grounded and rushed to the airport, only to find that the look-alike boy was, in fact, someone else. One credible report comes out later in 2015, in which the police receive an amateur photograph of a boy and an older woman in a central Queensland McDonald's. The boy looks remarkably like William, and coincidentally, the older woman looks a little like William's foster grandmother. However, upon a deeper investigation, police identify the photograph's subjects and confirm it is not William. On the two-year anniversary of William's disappearance, September 16th, 2016, the New South Wales government announces the reward for William's discovery or an incriminating arrest in the case would be increased to $1 million, the largest in New South Wales history. Eleven months later, and on August 24th, 2017, William's status as a foster child is finally made public. Citizens make outraged calls, as they feel it was vital information related to the case, and hiding it hindered the general public's ability to fully appreciate the circumstances. Another detailed investigative effort is unveiled on June 12th, 2018, exactly 45 months since the day William vanished at his foster grandmother's residence. The Public Order and Riot Squad proclaim the searches to focus on large-scale forensics as they scavenge the bushland around Kendall. The exploration lasts four weeks, but nothing of merit is brought to light. Almost six years, 3,000 calls, 11,000 documents, 1,000 interviews, and 700 persons of interest later, 
and there is still no significant updates in William Tyrrell's mysterious disappearance. While neither police nor the coroner's office have officially determined William's fate, homicide investigators remain the lead investigators in his case, believing murder to be probable. However, in what has become the biggest missing child investigation in Australia's history, and one of the largest in the world, no one has given up hope of one day finding William. Regardless of the lack of evidence, leads, or forensic clues procured in the years since September 11th, 2014. In a case with countless bad strokes, the worst of all might be the fact that there's simply no eyesore of a clue or highlighted puzzle piece that, with enough analysis or widespread display, could unlock the mystery of William Tyrrell's unfathomable disappearance. There are no footprints in the sand, no fingerprints at the scene of the crime, or any photographs of a shadowy figure lingering around Benaroon Drive. Only vague descriptions of a few unremarkable vehicles and grainy, innocent CCTV footage of William and his foster family at a McDonald's have been provided for the public, and all the good it did was lead to a dead-end breadcrumb trail leading to more questions and presumptions, and truly nothing of any substance at all. However, one thing we want to present with emphasis is the peculiar outfit William was wearing the morning he went missing. William became well known for the Spider-Man suit he wore frequently whilst playing or out and about with his family. Most people associate the William Tyrrell case with the famous photo of the boy smiling and showing off the Spider-Man costume. While some members of his blood family are not a fan of the symbol it has become in the search for William, it is undoubtedly a vital detail. Obviously, if William is still indeed alive, he would have long outgrown that Spider-Man outfit. And, if truth be told, his kidnapper probably discarded the obvious recognisable garment soon after taking William. However, William's love for the Spider-Man character could still be a part of his personality. If he was kidnapped and absorbed into another living situation, these vital clues as to who he was as a person may prove to be his calling card. Although it is very little to go on, it may be the best shot we have. And in pursuing this line of thought, to remind people that if they should ever come across a suspicious situation featuring a young boy, or a discarded Spider-Man suit, or a combination of the two, to reach out to the authorities. And so, with the facts of the case understood, we can now turn to the most prominent theories behind William's disappearance. Through all the smokescreen of all the illegitimate sightings and people calling in false reports, desperate for 15 minutes of fame, investigators have done their due diligence on a number of theories sprouted from testimonies given by people close to the William Tyrrell case. The first major hypothesis came from William's foster mother, who told police she remembered a couple of parked cars sitting outside of the grandmother's home on Benaroon Drive that morning. It came across as odd to the mother, as the cars were parked on the actual street in between two long driveways, instead of doing what drivers normally do, and parking at the end of these driveways instead of the side of the road. The first car was described as a white station wagon, with the driver's side window down, and the car in front of it described as an older, 
grey-coloured sedan type of vehicle. Neighbours later told police these types of cars are not regulars to the suburb and could not be identified nor claimed by the nearby residents. The timing struck police as suspicious as they scoured the area for cars matching those profiles. Despite this information, nothing noteworthy popped up until a year later, when authorities seized a white station wagon at a home on the New South Wales north coast. The vehicle in question, an older-style Toyota make, belonged to Anthony Jones, a 59-year-old convict and rapist who had recently been sentenced to three years in prison for the aggravated assault of a child. Besides the obvious child assault charge, Jones was further investigated for his role in a group called Grandparents as Parents Again, thought to be the hidden paedophile ring that the police were so concerned with initially. Despite the incredibly suspicious details of Jones and his vehicle, law enforcement ran intense forensic scans and came away with zero incriminating evidence, and Jones was never further considered as a serious suspect. Earlier in the same year, around January of 2015, police were focusing on another questionable figure, that of washing machine repairman Bill Spedding. Bill had been hired to inspect the appliances in the home from which William disappeared from, and was assisting with repairs at the time of the vanishing. Authorities searched both his private residence and his place of business, draining his septic tank for evidence and removing his vehicles, computers and mattresses for forensic testing. Both Bill and his wife pled for their innocence, stating that the publicity received from the investigation was destroying their lives and sending them into psychological turmoil. The spedding couple went so far as to address the public themselves, denying any involvement, but they were still met with harsh criticism and suspicion from concerned citizens. Fortunately, Bill was removed as a person of interest over four years later, when an inquest of William's investigation in August of 2019 heard Bill present his alibi. He submitted proof that on the morning William disappeared, he and his wife met for coffee at 9.30am and soon after went to a school assembly to see a child in their care receive an award. However, just as the theory revolving around Bill's spedding came to a close, that very August of 2019, Inquest produced another head-scratching theory that left many questioning the police and the man who came forward. Ronald Chapman, longtime resident of Kendall, New South Wales, informed those at the inquest about the sighting he had the morning of September 12, 2014. He reflected about hearing a loud noise outside of his home on Laurel Street and thought a plant delivery had arrived at his doorstep. However, when he went outside to check on the commotion, Ronald said he saw a three to four-year-old boy in the back seat of a fawn-coloured four-wheel drive, whipping down the high street at high speed. Ronald continued, saying that the four-wheel drive vehicle was driving off Benaroon Drive and appeared to nearly lose control. Despite this, he said there was in the back seat a boy with his hand against the window, unbuckled and unrestrained, yet calm and not crying wearing a noticeable Spider-Man suit. Ronald remembered the driver to be a blonde woman with pulled back hair of about 20 or 30 years old, operating the car at high speeds and followed by a second car. This one, a blue sedan, driven by a middle-aged man and on the wrong side of the road, also traveling at higher than normal speed.
The questionable component to Ronald's story is the period of time between his sighting and when he alerted the proper authorities. He spoke at the inquest of his initial thought that the police would go to him as part of their neighbourhood patrol, officially stating, quote, The detective in charge made several announcements on TV that they were going to come and interview people within a one kilometre radius. Yet, the knock on the door never came, and Ronald's vital piece of information was delayed. He waited an additional few weeks before approaching the sister of a police officer at the Kendall Services Club and gave her the message to pass on to law enforcement. However, it would be another six months before an official interview was scheduled by police, meaning over 1,000 days passed between Ronald potentially seeing William Tyrrell at the time he disappeared, and the police hearing his testimony. In this instance, both the authorities and Ronald waited entirely too long to act on this massive piece of evidence. Every minute is precious when attempting to find a missing person, and the woman driving the fawn-coloured four-wheel drive and the man behind her could very well be suspects. Ronald Chapman is supposedly a highly respected member of the Kendall community, but some have their doubts of the validity of his statement wondering why there are no other eyewitnesses of this reckless driving in a quiet suburb, or if it's an example of false memories, a common phenomenon in such high-profile and tragic cases. To this day, Ronald's claim is still under active investigation. Of course, as is natural with every high-profile missing child case, the parents are brought into questioning by both investigators and curious members of the public. William Tyrrell's disappearance adds another layer to that issue, when considering he was under the care of a foster family and his biological family fought tooth and nail to retain custody. Many have wondered if William's biological parents were involved in his disappearance themselves, pointing to their custodial efforts, negative domestic history, and the fact that they kept William hidden from social services for three months in a flat unknown to authorities. However, police have kept a watchful eye on Brendan and Carly, and it just doesn't seem to make sense for them to be rendered as serious suspects. While they shouldn't be ruled out until William is found, the fact of the matter is both biological parents have hardly been able to take care of themselves since their son went missing, let alone hide a young boy from countless police and government specialists for the better part of six years. Their residences and personal belongings have been thoroughly searched, and not a shred of doubt has been found. While their abusive relationships and domestic negligence is severely concerning, law enforcement does not seem to see them as suspects at this time, as is the same case with the Foster family. Of all the sightings and theories, one spider web of testimonies and disturbing behaviour revolving around one man convicted paedophile and accused murderer Frank Abbott remains to be the strongest hypothesis yet, built from evidence brought forth by a series of witnesses at inquests held in August 2019 and March of 2020. Because these interviews were conducted so recently, most interviewees have been kept unidentified for legal reasons. Part of the theory originates from a story told to the courts by an unidentified woman, who claimed she was babysitting two brothers when they turned to her and told her that a man by the name of Frank Abbott had told the brothers verbatim, I know who killed William.
The brothers continued, informing the woman that Frank had killed William and buried him in a suitcase, but that they hadn't seen the body. The youngest of the two brothers was frightened and didn't want to tell an adult for fear of being hurt, later saying Frank threatened to snap their mother's neck if they spoke out, but the eldest brother convinced him to share with their babysitter. The woman claims the brother's admittance came when all three were listening to Bring Him Home, the song from the musical Les Miserables, which had become a national symbol in William's case. The woman wasted no time and told her brother's mother, who felt it wasn't make-believe and reported it to Crime Stoppers. Frank had been convicted on sexual offences prior to this testimony and was in prison at the time of the March 2020 inquest. He was actually listening in via a webcam from his prison cell and was asked if he wanted to question the woman's story about the brothers. Frank calmly removed his glasses and stated, quote, She is only a young girl. She has been through enough already. However, this was not the only time Frank's name had been brought up in William Tyrrell's investigation. At the March 2020 inquest, former shop owner Jan Anderson recollected about the time Frank did repair jobs at Top Takeaway in town. She mentioned how she and her son, Dean Anderson, were wary of his unsettling aura and told the courts, quote, He always used to be friendly to the children. We just had a feeling we didn't trust him around them. We made a particular point of not having the children or grandchildren near Frank. Yet, one afternoon, Dean talked to Frank regarding a strange smell he experienced. Dean said at the inquest, quote, Frank kept going on about a bad smell around the Logan's Crossing area. We said it was probably a dead kangaroo. He said, quoting Frank now, I know the difference between a dead kangaroo and a dead human. Logan's Crossing was near the bushland in the vicinity of William's disappearance and would have been a major clue for police to pursue. The court asked Jan if Frank had ever reported the smell to law enforcement, and Jan said Frank told her, quote, No, no, no. I'm not going to do that. If there is something up there, I will get the blame for it. In the same testimony, Dean Anderson admitted Frank made a second suspicious comment about William Tyrrell's case. Dean stated, quote, Frank made a comment he thought they were searching in the wrong spots for William Tyrrell, which seemed like a very strange comment to make. As if the incriminating testimonies couldn't pile up even more, another gentleman by the name of Danny Parrish was brought in for the March 2020 inquest. The Parrish family had owned large properties on which Frank Abbott had lived at one point. Danny told similar stories to those of Dean Anderson, claiming Frank wouldn't stop telling the Parrish family and their neighbours that he supposedly knew where William Tyrrell was. Danny said Frank had threatened him many times, acting out belligerently, screaming, quote, I've been up before the court twice for murder, been dismissed by the judge, and I'll go to jail any time. I'll get three square meals a day. Danny said he lived in fear each moment Frank was around him after that tirade, and Danny had good reason to believe him, for Frank had been tried twice in the 90s for the 1968 murder of Helen Harrison, but escaped due to a hung jury in the first trial and an acquittal ruling in the second. Before Frank was arrested for another child molestation case, he told Danny one final time about William Tyrrell's fate. He said, quote, I know where William Tyrrell is. Why don't you check Jeff Owen's place? 
Jeff Owen had been a recently announced suspect in the police's investigation due to his history as a handyman in Kendall and was actually installing a deck at William's foster grandmother's house prior to September of 2014. How Frank could be certain of Owen's involvement was unknown and seemed to be more like a deflection of guilt than any sign of superior knowledge. When all these claims were initially reported on, many people speculated if Frank was nothing more than a disturbed sex offender commenting on a case that was at the forefront of everyone's minds, attempting to turn the attention on himself, and while acting incredibly creepy and suspicious, wasn't personally involved with William Tyrrell. Disturbed minds like his have been seen in previous cases, making weird comments to do nothing but stir up trouble. He had said a lot of strange things to a lot of New South Wales residents, so why take these seriously all of a sudden? Well, the answer may reside in one more testimony, heard by the courts mere days before the inquest was suspended due to the coronavirus pandemic. The story was told by an aged care nurse who started working at Port Macquarie four years after William vanished by the name of Kristen. One day at work, Kristen was administering medicine to a few of her patients when a physically declining man named Ray Porter approached her. Ray remarked how Kristen had, quote, one of those faces you can trust. When she asked Ray what he meant by that, he requested he would have no more visitors. He continued, telling Kristen, I didn't do anything wrong. All I did was give my best mate and that boy that went missing in Kendall a lift. Kristen told the court Ray was specifically talking about William Tyrrell and that he was incredibly uncomfortable, distressed even, during the conversation. Yet Ray carried on nonetheless, informing Kristen that he had picked up his best friend and William from a shed behind Kendall Public School and drove 300 kilometres northbound. Kristen then passed this information on to the hospital service manager, Tara Schofield, who alerted police. However, Ray died at the end of 2019 and could not be officially questioned as part of the investigation. Before he passed, though, he did repeatedly talk to Kristen and other nurses about two of his close friends. One man by the name of Phil and another by the name of Frank. The court confirmed with witnesses that the Frank in question was indeed Frank Abbott, but it is still unconfirmed that the best friend mentioned by Ray in his story about driving a man and William north of Kendall was Frank. It is important to note that Ray Porter's story does not incriminate Frank Abbott of any crimes against William Tyrrell. Ray did not name Frank Abbott by name and it could have been another friend. However, the amount of horrifying stories bringing to light Frank's nature and odd behavior goes a long way beyond circumstance. Again, there is no forensic evidence or physical proof Frank was connected in any way to the entire ordeal. But the mounting pile of statements suggesting he was an active follower of the Tyrrell case leads many to believe something more sinister is in play. Combined with Frank's history of paedophilia and homicide accusations, he is the suspect whose name keeps coming up and holds the most weight, feeding theories that seem to become more and more clear of one thing. Frank Abbott is guilty of something, whether it be steering investigators in the wrong direction, or worse, kidnapping and murder. 
Before we divulge our hypothesis of William Tyrrell's unsolved disappearance, we want to make it known that our conclusions presented in Cold Case Detective are purely logical speculation based on evidence, circumstance, and factual subtext. We are only privy to the same information presented in each video, and we do not promise certainty or an expert guarantee on the findings we reach in closing. We simply observe, research, and report. It's tricky to form a solid conclusion in William's case, solely because the inquest taking place in March of 2020 was providing so much critical information for the investigation, but was halted due to health concerns surrounding the coronavirus pandemic. There were still two days to go in questioning key witnesses, and thus a pivotal piece of evidence or testimony could have been delayed. Obviously, nothing that was produced during the inquest was incriminating enough to arrest anyone or for charges to be levied by prosecutors. However, it's worth wondering if a clearer picture could have been made with just one more day of factual presentation. Nevertheless, with the information gathered, we simply cannot ignore the unending claims made against Frank Abbott and his history of paedophilic violence. He displays many key behaviours of similar killers, like spending time around the scene of the crime, refusing to stop mentioning the case to anyone who would listen, and withholding a possible lead from police in fear of law enforcement's suspicion. He has hurt children on multiple occasions and was tried twice for murder he brags to have gotten away with. He was best friends with a man whose dying wish was to alert a nurse he had made contact with William Tyrrell the day he disappeared, claimed to have knowledge of William's resting place, and was a menace to citizens all around New South Wales. Could he have just been an example of an attention-seeking, severely mentally ill child abuser ranting about the biggest news stories? Perhaps. But it is also perhaps just as likely Frank is at least knowledgeable of William's fate, if not the one responsible with innocent blood on his hands. Until another suspect rises to the surface, Frank Abbott is the antagonist to this tragic, true tale. There is one final point to be made. It is very important to remember that despite all of the grim testimonies and evil nature of the case, there is no proof that William Tyrrell is dead. Many believe he could still be alive, and it's our duty to spread the word so he can be brought home as such. William deserves our strongest efforts, for his potential in the world was only beginning. His joyous nature and infectious energy must linger in our minds. Remember William not just as another little boy vanished or a missing child poster, but as a human with a beating heart, a playful child with a future that may still be saved. What happened that fateful morning on September 2014 should not be considered the end of William's narrative. It is up to us to spread the word, spread the hope, and make sure the day comes when the pen touches paper again, the truth is found, and justice is brought in the tragic case of William Tyrrell. This is Cold Case Detective. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Cold Case Detective Podcast. If you would like to support the show, you can do so by simply leaving a five-star review wherever you listen. It really helps us expand our reach and bring awareness to the cases we cover.
If you would like us to investigate a specific case, perhaps even one close to home or that of a loved one, please fill out the submission form in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week with a new episode.